Kia ora koutou. I'm Nick Toki, New Zealand's Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora, ko Nick Toki tēnei. He konai i pirangi tēnei e pā ana ki ngā Sounds of Science. Every episode, we talk about the work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Kia ora, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. And today, we have the privilege of having our inventor extraordinaire, Stu Coburn, on the show. Kia ora, Stu. Kia ora, Nick. Ko Stu Coburn, toku ngoa. Uh, hi, my name's Stu Coburn. I'm a technical advisor for the Department of Conservation with a focus on conservation technology. I guess my main role is developing technology for doing conservation work where that technology just doesn't exist. Because we tend to think of, of conservation work as something that's out there, hands-on, hands-on the birds, letting them go, and not so much about the tech. But what you guys are doing is kind of revolutionary. And to me, if you... To me, you're like the Q from James Bond for the Department of Conservation, right? Yeah, I guess so. Um, it's, we're not necessarily building the highest technology things in the world all the time, but um, the tools we build are built for purpose. And um, like I say, they're for doing things that, that we only we do. So um, they have to be built for a specific task and we get to do something really satisfying. If you can talk me through some of the kinds of creations that you guys build and then test out in the field to give us a real sense of what you're doing. Yeah, okay. Um, I've been doing this a long time, I've nearly 20 years. It's mostly around wildlife. Uh, so I've done things that I like to tell people that one of the first things I ever built was a 90 kilo camera that went 900 metres underwater to film sea lions and nets. Um, and I've done everything from that to a variety of tiny little devices that hang around various animals that weigh a few grams. So one of the other big areas that we work in, which we don't do for wildlife, is visitor counters. So we've built a network of devices that count people moving around the tracks that Doc manages. What, what does it mean? Why do you need a visitor counter? Uh, well, you know, Doc invests a lot of taxpayers' resources into managing these tracks and these facilities, and um, we need some background information on how much they're being used, when they're being used, how they're being used. Um, and this is one of the main tools we use for doing that, um, and it can be to make investment decisions about upgrading tracks um, or even closing tracks down because they're not being utilised a lot. Um, yeah, so it's a, it's a useful tool for informing the management. One of the stories that I've always loved about the Kakapo program is the, the doorbells, for example. Can you talk me through some of the tech that's used to make sure that we can look after Kakapo? So the way I kind of think about the work we do for Kakapo is Kakapo, the Kakapo team, the scientists behind Kakapo, have developed a series of interventions they use on Kakapo, things they do to improve the success of Kakapo, that, that they survive longer and that they breed better. What our technology does is provide them the information to make decisions on what interventions are necessary. Like um, snarks. Like snarks. So snark is a crazy name we came up with. Um, it's actually named after a, a kakapo chick um, <laughs> from many years ago. Uh, it's just basically a device that records the presence of kakapo using the transmitters they all wear. So every kakapo we know of has a, has a radio transmitter on it. And these things detect the presence of the kakapo and record it. Or they can make decisions like um, we have a device that unlocks a feeding station and so we can choose to feed one 
particular kakapo out of a feeding station um, using this technology. We also hook scales up to the feeding stations, so we not only know who's been there, we know how much they weigh as well, which is really important for managing their health. If we detect a, a massive loss in weight, we can go and actually go, say, maybe there's a problem here. The doorbells you're talking about is when kakapo nest. We also have technology now that monitors the nest. Uh, so the doorbell is a doorbell. It, it's a little beam sensor that sits across the entrance and as the mums come and go, um, the doorbell goes and alerts um, either people on site that, that the birds left or arrived, or what we have been doing in the last couple of seasons is that data is actually transmitted remotely to the hut. And so back at the hut, we know that the mum has come and gone um, to help us help the rangers make decisions to go and intervene or do things if they need to. Uh, I understand that you've also, been, when you've been out in the field, you've um, been able to assist them as prod boy. Tell us what that means. Oh, yes, this is um, this is a day with Kate McGuinness, who you interviewed a, a few weeks ago. Our wildlife vet. Yes, yes all, all days with Kate are a little bit weird, but this one was particularly <laughs> weird. Um, there was some of the early experiments in um, trying to produce kakapo sperm. Um, from male kakapo and uh, it used an electro ejaculation system and I got to be the ground prod. So um, I sat and spent a day holding a copper rod up the cloaca of male kakapo. <laughs> that was one of my weirder days at work. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that. It had nothing to do with my electrical qualifications. It was just I happened to be the boy on the spot. So It yeah. wasn't part of your engineering requirements? No, no, I was just helping hand that day. Or, or helping prod. <laughs> helping prod. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know many people that can add that to their CV, so I'm pretty impressed with that. It seems like, you know, you say you've been doing this for 20 years. This is very niche, being, you know, the, the wildlife inventor uh, designing the tech to save the things. How, did you, is this something that you decided as a kid was, was going to be your career pathway? How did this happen? I was brought up in Ashburton where there's not an awful lot of wildlife, so it wasn't something I'd come, sort of come across. And I had no interest in electronics, so quite how I, how I ended up here, I don't know. But I guess the story started with um, somebody you met not long ago as well, Lynn Adams. Um, so uh, Lynn has known that she's wanted to do this since she was a little girl. And uh, Lynn and I went to school together. And um, not long after school, we got together and have been together ever since. Um, and that's how I discovered conservation basically. Um, I already started my engineering career but once I discovered conservation I knew that's what I wanted to do and then this job appeared and um, I now consider myself a conservationist not an engineer. My next job will be in conservation. What has been, apart from obviously having been with your childhood sweetheart for all of this time, <laughs> what, uh, and she is a sweetheart, we did interview Lynn, she's a, one of our favourite herpetologists, um, but what, what's been your greatest achievement? If you look back on the last 20 years in this role, what are some of your greatest achievements in terms of the things you've been able to design to turn things around? Yeah, it's kind of hard to pick one thing out. Um, pick a few. Pick a few. I, I think from an engineering point of view, one of the things I'm most proud of is um, the bat recorder we developed seven or eight years ago. It's kind of interesting that it was only in the 1960s sometime that humans discovered that bats used ultrasound for navigation, which isn't very long ago. And uh, since then, we've been developing techniques for capturing those sounds um, as a method of detecting bats. And in all that time, there's only a handful of methods that have ever been developed, and I'm talking about an engineering sense here, um, for detecting bats. And we create a new one. So um, we developed a new technology, and I will always remember the day we went up to Puriora 
um, an amazing place. And uh, we put out these new recorders, which theoretically we thought would work, um, put them out in the field, and then we went and gathered them the next morning, put the recordings into the computer, and there was exactly what we'd expected and intended as theory by not, not just the engineering theory, but also what we'd read about the biology of bats and what we should be seeing. Um, that was a pretty good moment. Are you able to describe how they work? Yeah, so the trouble with recording bats, obviously, is that they use ultrasound and humans can't hear ultrasound, of course. So what you need to do is develop a technique so that we can electronically convert the ultrasound into something humans can interpret. Um, and there's several methods of doing that. Um, some of them involve shifting the sounds down electronically so that we can hear them, or just recording them and interpreting them on a computer. And ours is a form of that. As the bats pass by, we record them, we convert it into a thing called a spectrogram, which is an image representation of sound, and then we save that as an image. Um, the trick with it is because of the high recording rates, you end up with huge files, and, and we've compressed those images um, in a way that makes them much smaller and easier to handle. Um, so it's kind of a new technique, a new way of doing it, and it works. So as a conservationist engineer, uh, what does that mean for the bats? Because bats are tricky. A, most people don't know they exist. B, when you know they might be around, they're really hard to pin down. And C, because they move around so much, really tricky to, to try and look after. So, so what does your technology mean for those bats? Uh, it solves a lot of those problems that you just talked about. So what it's done is it's meant we've been able to produce a cheap, easy-to-use tool. We've made about 3,000 of them, and so they're used all over the country, and people use them to identify the locations of bats where they are. Um, at least two new populations of bats have been discovered using our recorders. So it's really what it means is it puts a detection and, and monitoring tool into the hands of our conservationists, our field staff, in an easy-to-use and cheap format. We can build them for our own staff for about a quarter of the prices we can buy something commercially. So um, it gives us this incredible tool that we can just go out and use, find where they are. What was it like for you guys the first time you trialled them, waiting to see those results pop up? It's um, always a little bit fraught when you develop something new. Yeah, uh, I think I made the point at some stage that uh, there's a billion ways of making things that don't work and, and very few of making ways of things that do work. So. You've always got an expectation of having problems on that first morning where it had just worked perfectly the first time we put it out to record bats was, yeah, yeah, that's a bit of a buzz. Nailed it. Yeah. yeah. Who inspires you in terms of, you know, your work and how you go about it? I knew this question was coming and so I had a bit of a thought about it and, and I, I decided to tell you a story about Rail Island. So um, I was really lucky that before I started this job, so over 20 years ago, I spent most of a year on Rail Island and um, I was extra lucky that as part of this job, I got to go back almost exactly 10 years after I'd left, almost to the day. And um, I arrived on Rail Island and in that time, Doc had cleared all the pests off it, the rats and the cats, and um, that had been done about four years before. And the weed program, which is the main program under the air, had carried on. And I, that was just a great day because I arrived on the island 10 years after I'd left and the island was booming. It was full of birds where it had been pretty empty and the weeds were not gone but had a big hole in them. And I think what inspires me about conservation is that was just the effort of a whole lot of people who just kept on going and don't stop and that's where that's how conservation wins. It's endless effort from lots of people over a long period of time and we get there. It was a great day to see just what that outcome can be. I completely agree and there is something really special about, you know, um, and ho hopefully more we'll be able to see more of this on the mainland, but the, the minute you set foot 
on one of those islands and, you know, a kōkaka just starts trilling off in front of you or, you know, you trip over a takahi on your way up the track, that's the moment where all the pieces come together, isn't it, about what you're doing and why. Yeah, and it's inspiring to me that just so many people can put so much effort in over a long period of time and get that result. In the time I spent on rail in the 90s, I didn't see a single parakeet. And four years after the eradication, they were in flocks of them around on the lawns beside the house. They were everywhere. I found a nest um, six metres off a track that I'd walked ten times every day for most of a year and not seen a thing. It was an incredible place. That makes it all worth it. Uh, I heard a little rumour. I'm a little bit jealous about this. I heard a rumour that your work, I mean, you, you ha- a lot of your work has been sort of recognised internationally and picked up in various papers and other people are doing stuff like what you guys do. But I heard that your work has been discussed in another podcast. Do you want to tell me a bit about that? Oh, yeah. Uh, My favourite podcast is uh, The Infinite Monkey Cage. It's a BBC science podcast. Also my favourite podcast. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) And I was was randomly listening to it in the car one day and I'd actually just come back off Godfish Island and they started talking about Kākāpō. And someone mentioned Kākāpō. And we're back to Kākāpō. They always end up in the conversation. Yeah, and... um, and this woman on the podcast said, oh, my God, Kakapo, they're my favourite, and started raving about the scales and the snarks and all the equipment. And I was, it was, yeah, it's pretty cool to hear yourself talked about on your favourite podcast. That is amazing. I'm quite, so, so one of the things you guys are renowned for is the number eight wire approach to some of the inventions that you come up with, right? Like, you're pretty kind of flexible and agile and creative with the materials you use to build things for dock staff who might need something really quickly. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about um, the devices that you created to track endangered grasshoppers in the Mackenzie? Happy to tell you about it, but yeah, engineers tend not to like hearing their equipment described as number eight wire. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only reason that I'm perhaps being a little bit casual about this one is that I had the privilege of having to take this particular invention on an aeroplane and make all kinds of explanations about what I was carrying uh, in order to get it down to Christchurch and across the Mackenzie. So um, how do you track a robust grasshopper? Should we, should we call it um, reusing existing technology in a cunning way rather than number eight wire? The problem was trying to find these tiny little grasshoppers in this landscape um, when they're very well hidden, of course. Um, this is the Mackenzie. This is in the Mackenzie, and you know they've evolved to hide themselves from all our avian predators, and so they're hard to find. And so this project required a way of finding them and detecting them and tracking them and understanding the fate of our grasshoppers. So what we decided to use was the little microchips that people inject into cats and dogs. Um, But we used it in a slightly different way. Instead of using it to identify that this individual was this, this dog was this dog and this cat was this cat, um, we used it as a detection tool. So the the scientists involved glued the tag to the grasshoppers. Um, These are tiny little grains of rice. They're slightly smaller than the ones that are used in dogs. And uh, we built them a thing that looks a lot like a metal detector. But rather than detecting metal, it read read the RFID tags. And does it read it, basically reads it like a supermarket scanner, doesn't it? It's the same principle. Sort of. So, yeah. No, you can, it, you can explain. Well, so the supermarket scanners use a barcode. Obviously, it's printed onto the onto the device. We didn't go print barcodes onto the grasshoppers. Um, this is exactly the same technology as goes into a cat. So it's a little electronic tag which has an antenna and the, the reader powers the tag up and then it transmits its identity out. 
Um, and so the end result of this thing was that you could walk around scanning it over the landscape and it would beep at you to tell you that you'd just passed over a grasshopper that you would probably never have seen. It may even be under a rock. And it just enabled them to cover large areas of the landscape quickly, not on their hands and knees groveling around looking for grasshoppers, but just getting this little beep and away they go. So it speeds up, speed up their work quite a lot. And what was it made of, Stu? Uh, it was made out of uh, an off-the-shelf RFID reader, and I know what you're getting at here, <laughs> and a custom-made coil and a crutch from a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that I'm getting at this is that I had the privilege of transporting said uh, uh, grasshopper detector on an aeroplane back to Christchurch in order to get it across to the Mackenzie. And so I had all manner of crazy questions around what was I transporting and why. And, you know, when you're trying to explain to airport security that don't worry, it's just a grasshopper detector, you know, people are falling about laughing left, right and centre. And, and also the scientist at the time phoned me and said, would you mind just picking something up from Stu and the guys in the workshop? Because I, I, I need to take it across the Mackenzie. I said, no problem. But, and I know that a lot of the stuff you make is really tiny. So I was expecting like maybe a lunchbox. But no, instead I get gifted this hospital crutch with a, with a big kind of loop welded on the end of it. Yeah, getting questioned at... Um Security for aeroplanes is a big part of my job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. So to, let's close the loop. Was it successful? Did it work? Uh, yes. Yep. Yep. No, it's been really successful. So um, we've built a few more and they're out being used pretty regularly. We've used them for snails as well. Um, and it's one of those technologies that probably once the word gets around a little more, um, they'll be utilised more widely. I think one of the the technology that people tend to use for that stuff is to buy tiny, tiny little transmitters that cost a few hundred dollars and the battery goes flat after a couple of weeks anyway. And so this was kind of an alternative way of doing that. The chips themselves cost about 90 cents, I think. So, um, wow. yeah, and last forever. So um, it was it's kind of a nice reuse of technology to do things in a slightly more cunning way. Stu, can you tell us about maybe what your weirdest day at work has been? Yeah, there's there's been a few. The, one I thought I might mention, uh, just because it was kind of an interesting day as well, was um, helping out with a Great Spotted Kiwi project one time on the west coast in the Taramakau Valley. And we were trying to catch this Great Spotted Kiwi and I made the mistake, maybe I was led into it, um, of going underground into the, this large burrow to try and catch this Great Spotted Kiwi, which turned around and um, had a go at me. So. Um, yeah, being underground in a kiwi burrow and then suddenly finding yourself being attacked by this large, capable animal was was not not your standard engineer's day. Were you getting like pecked in the eyeball? Because I've seen colleagues go down those burrows, and so you're jammed in there, right, shoulder to shoulder. You can't do much else but wriggle, and all I can picture is your face and an angry kiwi just like going for it. Yeah, this this burrow was so big, I wasn't jammed in. I was just underground, um, and. Uh, you know, Kiwi attack you with their legs. They're, they're, they're big, capable animals. I've, I've worked with great spots a bit. And, you know, people have this idea of Kiwi as being these these little gentle beasts of the forest, but not at all. They're, they're big and capable and fast and aggressive. Um, and, a, and a great spot has got, a, you know, like a foot span the size of my hand span. Yeah, they're sizable animals. Yeah, yeah. My boss at the time said he didn't know people could reverse so quickly. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, you see, and it is true, isn't it? Just to just to sort of sideways, go sideways for a second. I know a ranger on the west coast who was working on maybe the Rowie, the creator of Rowie program, 
and there was a um, there's a Kiwi there they call Bruce Lee. Yeah. Because so, all Kiwi have different personalities and they would send her in to sort out Bruce Lee just for fun, I think. And, you know, it became like a traumatic experience getting attacked by a much smaller Kiwi in this instance. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I've worked on, I lived on the West Coast for a few years and helped out with the Okarito program with the Rowie program a bit. And in those days there was a bird called Scooter who sounds a lot like Bruce Lee. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, some of them are quite snaky little fellas. Which is good, right? That's the whole, you you know, you often, part of my job means I'm often involved in Kiwi releases of young chicks that have been raised to a particular size. You want them to be the fighty ones, don't you? So they've got a much better chance of survival. Yeah, yeah. The stuff I've done with Kiwi, I've always been amazed what capable animals they are. Um, I've another night of memory of great spots, lot, much more pleasant night, um, where I heard a great spot call over the other side of this massive beach log and I climbed up on the beach log just to basically have a look and it vanished in the dark and um, a few minutes later I heard it moving way down the river and this bird had moved off several hundred metres across loose gravel on a riverbed without shifting a stone. They're just so capable and then they can be loud and aggressive when they want to be as well. Yeah, I, I, I've had a couple of lovely nights in, sitting in the middle of winter on the side of a hill on Arthur's Pass listening for great spots. Always amazed by great spots because um, the, the girl great spots, to me, they kind of sound a bit like Patty and Selma off The Simpsons, eh? Like they have a much more gravelly call. They sound like they've just smoked a packet of holidays or something and then, then they, they just kind of crack off into the night. But it's still a very surreal and exciting experience. Can you tell me a little bit about your seabird sound systems? Yeah, it's again one of those bits of gear that aren't exactly high tech, but you can't go by just anywhere. Um, so these are sound systems that we've developed mostly for bringing seabirds into islands that have had pest eradications done. So these are islands that would have once been teeming with seabirds, been wiped out after years of, of rats and cats and all the rest of those nasties. Um, so after some people have come through and removed all the pests, which is obviously the hard bit. Um, this piece of equipment gets installed, and fundamentally what it is is a big speaker that sits on the side of a hill and plays seabird calls. Um, it sounds ridiculous, but they can be incredibly effective. And so they draw seabirds back to the islands that have been eradicated so we can get the populations established sooner. One of the other things we do with them is we might there might be birds are starting to come back to the island anyway, and the seabird sound systems get them all into one place, so that makes them a bit easier to manage and deal with um, and establish that sort of colony ecology a bit sooner. The Tycho program would be a good example of that, wouldn't yep. it? Yep, and they've been used on Tycho, yep. Uh, Chatham, Chatham Island Petrol, I think, is another one they've been used for. We've built, I think we had an ad up a while ago, it must be about 100 of them, um, and they're in Hawaii and Australia and Fiji and Tonga, and I think we sent some systems off to the Seychelles many years ago, so they're quite widely spread around the country and around the world. And do they, be, they obviously have to be specific to the song or the you know the call of that particular species? Yeah. So there's just a memory card that people put the um, files onto, the sound files, and this thing sits on the side of the hill. Sounds trivial, but making something that can sit on the side of a hill in um, Cook Strait or uh, you name it uh, for years on end playing calls without getting blown to pieces is a little bit of an engineering challenge. So tell me about that. What does it look like? Yeah, because you're right. I would just go, oh, yeah, you made a system, you stuck it on the hill. But you're right. You've got to put it in some pretty rough climate kind of areas uh, and habitats. What does it look like to, to engineer that? Yeah, it's it's everything's just in a waterproof case, um, bolted down very well. 
and uh, waterproof connectors, all those kinds of things. So when it comes to the Seabird sound systems, the, the one that kind of made headlines kind of almost around the world was the story of Nigel, the gannet. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your gannet sound system? Yeah, so the, the, the gannet system on Manor Island was one of the first ones I ever installed. And so this one was a sound system, so I was sitting and playing gannet calls, but it also included uh, some concrete gannets that had been built and painted by school kids. I, I, I had nothing to do with that part of it. As, nothing, a, as a visual sort of cue? As a visual cue as well. Poor old Nigel turned up after a few years, the only gannet that ever turned up, and um, and got quite close to some of the concrete gannets, and um, I think don't think it went very well for Nigel in the end. Uh, Stu, if we talk about some of your acoustic recorders, you've been in the news recently for, uh, you know, discovering a whole new population of Haas Tokoweka, one of our rarest species of kiwi, right? Tell me about it. Well, I can't really take credit for that. Um, we made some recorders and we put them in a box and we sent them to some people who went and found some Haas kiwi. Who put Tokoweka. them in the bush and found a whole new population of our rarest species of kiwi. That's amazing. Oh, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. And, our, and it really does, the team's chuffed when they hear those stories that, you know, they, they, these things that they've built and they've developed in this very dry environment in the workshop are going out there and doing amazing things. Saving um, the things. Yeah, but but we have to put give some credit to the people who actually, um, you know, did the work. Yeah. But I, and I suppose that to me that's the interesting part. If we're looking into the future of, you know, Inventor HQ, whatever you want to call it. The the what what does this big data look like out there when you're you know you're you're essentially you you guys are creating the eyes and the ears of what's happening on the ground where rangers don't you know may not even get to or scientists. So what's it going to look like in the future? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I mean, the, some of the technologies that are coming along now are just going to be such huge gains for conservation. So some of the satellites that are being put up. Um, that are going to provide low-cost data from anywhere um, just means that we can start really thinking about looking everywhere and, and knowing what's going on all the time. It has to be applied in a scientific way, in a careful way, that we're not just gathering data for the sake of gathering data, but the potential is huge for us to know so much more about what's going on. And then, well, that's the whole thing, right? We can't, we're not gathering data for the sake of gathering data because what you're doing is you're creating, you know, and like, I'm, I'm a visual person, so in my mind, I can see a map of New Zealand with little lights going off, you know, like, bing, I just found a yellow-bellied sapsucker over here, and then you can divert your resource to protect the thing, yeah. right? So you're actually making us more and more efficient at saving more of the things more of the time. It's about giving the people who are doing the work the information so that they can choose the right interventions at the right time to make the biggest effect. And that's, you know, conservation is always resource limited, always will be. Um, there's always going to be more than we can possibly do. And so making ourselves as efficient and possible and what we choose to do is, is always going to be crucial. Oh, well, I think we're in very good hands. I have a particular bent for saving the little things. And, you know, if we can be sticking little transmitters the size of a grain of rice onto a grasshopper to protect where it lives, then, the, you know, the world's our oyster for saving the, you know, X thousand others that we need to look after as well. Yeah, one of my focuses at the moment is and, um, we have been doing bird conservation for so long and we've got so many well-evolved tools and things that we need, whereas for the little guys, maybe it's something we haven't thought about so much. And so there's a lot of room for me there in developing tools that we just don't have some of the basic tools for managing some of the little species, um, some of the things that have maybe been under the radar for a while. Uh, so, so quite focused on doing those sorts of things at the moment. 
Brilliant. Thank you so much, Stu. That's just been absolutely fascinating. And uh, we look forward to hearing where you guys take your inventions next. Thank you. Okay, no problem. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you like what you heard, show us some love with a five-star rating. The Doc Sounds of Science podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now and never miss an episode. 